Uh, if you're, um, you're joining us for the first time or for the first time for a while, my name's Greg, I'm the pastor here, um, but we're in a book-by-book Bible overview. And, uh, and it's fun, but it's full-on, because each week uh, some of you have been trying to read um, each book of the Bible. And the last six weeks, including tonight, have been heavy going because they're the historical books all about the kings of Israel and Judah. And so we've come to the end tonight, two Chronicles, but it may well be that you're kind of, oh, I've, I've done all the kings now. <laughs> I've had enough of kings. I'm ready to move on. Well, if that's with you, uh, you then I sympathize. Um, it's been heavy going, but it's been good for us. We've learned loads of lessons along the way. Um, so we're in two Chronicles tonight. Um, if you want to be finding two Chronicles in your Bibles, um, then I'll be referring to a few passages in two Chronicles. But I want to start by um, talking about communication and how key um, communication is pretty much in any sphere of life. Uh, so say you're, you know, you're a boss, you're at work, you like things done in a certain way. Well, unless you've communicated the way that you like things done, then you can't really get too upset if one of your employees doesn't do things just the way you like it. However, if you have been very clear and they go against your way of doing things, then, you know, you could hold them to, you know, professional misconduct. And, you know, they're at risk of receiving the sack if they continue to, to go down that direction. Communication's key. Communication's key in, in other areas. Um, Obviously, in marriage, it's, it's hugely key. On the sports pitch, I remember um, one time playing rugby, and uh, a guy in the middle of the game, he shouted to me, Greg, you're making us look rubbish. I was like, oh, that hurt. But I was the 10, the fly half in rugby speak, which is like the quarterback in American football, the guy who's making all of the calls. But because I wasn't effectively communicating, nobody knew what they were doing. And so he was absolutely right. Greg, you're making us look rubbish. Communication's key. And when it comes to God, he is a pretty clear communicator. So in chapter 15, verse 2, he says these words, and they're, they're just blunt, but they're clear. He's speaking through his prophet, and he says to King Asa in chapter 15, verse 2, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin... The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Now we hear that and that's, that's in your face. That's, that's stark. Each week in these overviews, I've been trying to give you an understanding of how the book would have would have been heard by its original hearers. And God doesn't hold back any punches there. He's being very clear. He's saying, if you stick with God, he'll stick with you. If you ditch him, he'll ditch you. Couldn't be any clearer, could he? Now, obviously, we have to understand that through the lens of the New Testament for us 21st century readers. And we know ultimately that God chases us down whilst we're still sinners. It's amazing. But I guess in understanding the starkness of what he's saying there, of him being such a clear communicator, he's saying to each of us, and I think this is where it's true for us 21st century hearers, uh, hearers 
I will give you your heart's desire. Have you thought about that before? If your heart's desire is to know God, man, he's going to give you your heart's desire. Because for him, it's about relationship, not religion. He doesn't care about ritual. He just wants to love you and hold you and walk with you and bless you. And because he's the God of life, he's the God of all blessing. And if you love him, he will draw so close. But if your heart's saying, I don't want anything to do with you, God, then that's where we don't realize it. But that's a horrible thing to say because God treats us like adults and he says, fine, you don't want anything to do with me. I'll give you a heart's desire. And that's dangerous, friends, because as I've just said, all blessing, all life comes from him. And if we push ourselves away from that, if we decide, no, my heart's desire is to have nothing to do with you, Lord, then for eternity, no life, no blessing. And so 2 Chronicles, yes, it is clear. God is a very clear communicator. And it's a book that we read. um, And it's a hard read. But this is a big theme. So big theme in 1 and 2 Chronicles. Remember the last few weeks I said they they were originally one book, um, split in two, presumably so that scribes could more easily copy them, um, written originally around 450 to 400 BC, which means their original intention, the original audience that they were intended for, were the Judeans returning from Babylonian exile. And the, the temple had probably already been rebuilt by the time 1 Chronicles was written. And it's all about these guys coming back to Jerusalem and refinding themselves, reattaching themselves to their broken history. They were Hebrews, but they've been living in a foreign land. And it's reminding them about who they really are as God's covenanted people. And I mentioned in previous weeks that there's a lot of crossover with 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. But the big difference between Chronicles and Kings and Samuel is that Israel, the northern kingdom, isn't mentioned at all. It's just concerning Judah. And that's because the chronicler, the author, perhaps Ezra, wants Um, to focus on the Davidic promises. Promises are key. When they're returning to Jerusalem, he's saying, look, refind yourself in the promises of God. And this is the theme of 2 Chronicles. If you refind yourselves in the promises of God and you obey him and you stay close to him, you're going to be blessed. But if you squander this opportunity to embrace relationship and you wander then don't be surprised if you end up in exile again. That's the theme of 2 Chronicles. And so I guess that question is reposed. What are you going to do with God's word? And it's the same for us today. This is history. We know that these things happened. What are we going to do with God's word? When we leave tonight, And there's a little promise of God's whirring around in our heads. Maybe a favorite promise, maybe something new which has just come into your ears tonight. What are you going to do with it? Because James says, be doers of the word, not just hearers only. Um, A few things to say before we look at one main passage for tonight. Um, First thing I want to say is, um, it's an incomplete book and the... ESV, I'm going to read to you, it really conveys this quite well. So towards the end, chapter 36, verse 23, it ends with an incomplete sentence. So end of the book, 
chapter 36, verse 23. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord, his God, be with him. Let him go up. And then it ends. <laughs> Let him go up. And it ends. <laughs> ends there. Let him go up. Now, first off, it's amazing that Cyrus, a Persian king, says what he says. He's not a Jew. And yet we know, don't we, God's sovereign over the whole of the world. And he's given this Persian king who perhaps before this didn't have any interest in the Hebrew culture. He's given him the charge to rebuild the temple. And as I said, the temple was probably built by the time uh, 1 Chronicles was written. Why do I say this? It's because this incomplete verse is more than a simple retelling of history. This, this chronicler, this narrator, he's included the history he needs to make his deeper theological point. And he's saying, look, you're coming back into this place and it's not just about the physical temple right now. It goes beyond that. Obedience means what you're going to do this evening when you leave church. What are you going to do tomorrow? What are you going to do next week? And the year after that? Let him go up and dot, dot, dot. We could write as the end of the sentence. Uh, in the, the famous words of Buzz Lightyear, to infinity and beyond. You know, he's saying it's not just about now. Uh, obedience to God isn't a means to an end. It's, it's about every single step you take. Whoever is among you, all his people, may the Lord be with him also. Let him go up into 2035, striding for Jesus. If Jesus hasn't returned by then, let him go up to 2055. Keep on trucking away for Jesus. I think that's how we're supposed to hear that verse. It's an incomplete book. Um, but then the other thing I, I want to just point out about 2 Chronicles is in our Bibles, what's the last book of the Old Testament? Old Testament? Trick question. Almost. What's that? Malachi. Yes, Malachi. This is good that we're doing a book-by-book book Bible overview, isn't it? <laughs> Last book of the Old Testament in our English translations is Malachi. But in the Hebrew Bible, it's two chronicles. And it is interesting. Just as Malachi ends with this hope, which is picked up at the start of the Gospel, Malachi ends, 400 years silence, Jesus comes and he fulfills the promise that Malachi prophesied about. Well, likewise, 2 Chronicles, it ends, let him go up and, and there's like this 400 years silence, like, let him go up and do what? Let him go up to the real true temple who is Jesus and find life in him. He's the means and the ends. Yeah. Okay, right, um, I want us to look at one passage uh, this, this evening, and um, I should, should say that uh, 2 Chronicles, it, it basically splits into two, um, if I haven't mentioned that already, and the second half is chapters 10 to 36, which is just a really long list of kings, and I feel like we've had so much time spent on lots of different kings that I'm not going to venture into that block. Instead, I'm going to deal with another section of Two Chronicles, where God is just being in your face. He's being really, really clear. So it's chapter 7 we're going to look at, and we're going to look at verses 12 to 22. 
Okay, chapters twelve, uh, chapters seven, verses twelve to twenty-two, um, and these are words spoken to Solomon by God shortly after uh, he's finished building the temple. And from these verses, I'm going to pull out five very brief lessons I think God wants all of his returning children to know. And when I say returning children, us who are on a pilgrimage to see Jesus face to face. So, chapter 7, verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I've heard your prayer and I've chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you'll walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I've commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man to rule Israel. But if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I've set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you up from my land that I've given you and this house that I've consecrated for my name. I will cast out of my sight and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And at this house, which was exalted, everyone passing will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this disaster on them. Big passage. Five very brief lessons. First is this. There is a right way to worship God. In Solomon's, um, in God's words to Solomon, verse 12, he says, I have chosen this place for myself. Back in this time, it was indeed a specific place for God-ordained worship. And the Samaritans, we remember the Samaritan woman at the well speaking to Jesus, they had set up a rival temple on Mount Gerizim to worship God. And yet here we're learning they were not worshipping in the place God had chosen. Likewise, the Greeks, they worshipped a whole plethora of gods and goddesses. And again, they were not worshipping the one true God in the way he had chosen. Now, Hear me out, I know this sounds awfully, awfully un-PC in our world today. And yet, friends, if God is infinitely bigger than us, then, of course, we can only truly expect to meet him on his terms. Uh, the, the beauty of our God is that he in invites us to worship him. I mean, that's amazing. 
Uh, today, the belief in relativism holds uh, many within its grasp. Uh, relativism removes absolutes, basically. It says, look, um, what's right for you might not be right for me, but we can both be right in our own rights. <laughs> basically, there's a lot of rights. Jesus, who is this true temple, the fulfillment of the Davidic promises mentioned in New Chronicles, he comes along and he says, isn't he, John 14, verse 6, we know it, we know it off the back of our hands. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And you remember the definite article in that, I am the way, the, not one of many. Uh, likewise, um, the, the condition in the unconditional of the famous John 3.16, for God so loved the world, we think, oh, that's unconditional. His love is vast, and it is. But then he says that whoever believes in Jesus, there's a condition that makes that unconditional love effective. He's a really clear communicator, and I think this point is necessary because all too often when we talk about God's unconditional covenant, without realizing it, we, we just basically become universalists, and, and God just loves and accepts everybody. And if that's the case, then why did Jesus come and say, repent and believe? I know this is heavy, but friends, this is the good news, that he offers us the chance to, to, to have our sins removed through repentance, and to believe in him, the one who never, ever, ever, ever ends, who is joy every new day, who is life every new day, who is security every new day. You can know that beauty in your own lives right now, and it becomes fuller even after you die. Wow. Um, Believing in Jesus, you know, it's just history. Believing that Jesus died to forgive me for my sins, that's salvation. There's a difference. So firstly then, uh, there's a right way to worship God. Secondly, and again, these are, these are hard truths to, to, to grapple with, but they're there. God disciplines those he loves. Most of us, you know, I've heard, we've said, God is love, really popular. People to say that it's entirely true. God is the very definition of love. Unfortunately, though, sometimes we think that means that he should love us the way we want to be loved. And sometimes we don't want to be loved in the right way. You just think, what would it look like if a parent responded to a naughty child in the way the naughty child wanted the parent to respond to them. So what happens if the naughty child's favorite thing was to, to chop off and then eat their heads of their next-door neighbor's daffodils? You know? <laughs> and, and he's like, look, if you really love me, you'll let me do this to all of their daffodils. I mean, you'd have to be pretty terrible parents. Say, okay, yeah, fine, I love you. That's how you want to be loved. Go and eat all their daffodils. Your next-door neighbors would be furious. What are you doing to my daffodils? There's good parents in those times. We say, no, look, there's, there's a discipline in, in true love. Because if I don't discipline you now, then you're going to grow up thinking it's okay to eat daffodils of anybody and everybody. 
and you're going to go and visit Buckingham Palace or whatever, and you're going to be chomping the daffodils. And that's not cool. In chapter 7, verse 13, we read, this is God speaking, when I shut up the heavens or send pestilence among my people, this is from God. God's in control of all. It's not the other nations receiving the pestilence here. It's God's very own children. He's saying, when I send this to my people, we might say this is God's judgment. But when we were reading that passage, it's obvious God doesn't want that to be final. Those things are given in hope that his children might kind of wake up and think, yeah, man, we've, we've been so harsh to you, God. You're in charge of all and, and you're given this, this chance to come back to you. It's like a wake-up call. Throughout Chronicles, God disciplines his children in loads of ways like that. Shutting up the heavens, famine, drought, pestilence. Sometimes it's war, sometimes it's defeat in battle. Uh, at one point, it's exile. Quite often, it's simply allowing lives of sin to continue. And we see that so powerfully displayed, don't we, in one of the parables Jesus tells about the prodigal son. And the chap comes and says to his dad, look, I wish you were dead. Can I have my money now? And the father says, yeah, sure, here's your money. And it breaks the dad's heart because he loves his son. He wants him close. And he knows what the son's going to do. He's been providing him security up till that point. But anyhow, gives the son free will. The son goes off and he is a nightmare. <laughs> Any parent. Oh, Talk about fretting what your kids are up to. This poor dad just hearing stories trickle over the grapevine. Your son did this. Your son did that. Squanders all of his wealth on sinful living. What would that look like today? And then comes running back. Because it's at those moments when you realize that the thing you thought would bring you satisfaction cannot satisfy because all of us have a God-shaped hole in our hearts and, and, and we think sometimes that a drug is going to bring me ultimate satisfaction, that a relationship down here, a loved one, a marriage, is going to bring me that satisfaction. That only God can provide it. Fame, fortune, business, whatever it is. It's a God-shaped hole and only he can satisfy. Sometimes it's only when we reach rock bottom when we realize that. It's why, you know, we, we really get behind our prison ministry here in church because some of the prisoners there, they're faced, they can't see the ones that they love the most. Maybe they're kids, they're behind bars, and it's only then that it dawns onto them, man, I've been such a fool. And then we take ownership of our fault and Jesus says, I've not come to call the healthy, but the sick. And, and, and sometimes it's only when we reach rock bottom that we realize we're sick and we need a savior. The hardest lessons that you learn in life are most likely going to be the most profound. The biggest life-changing lessons you learn won't be learned on the dance floor. It's going to be learned in the furnace. I can say that, that The time of my life when I've learned the, 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 the deepest lesson about how powerful God's love is, that it can 
break down all of my barriers and get into the nooks and crannies came in the most painful moment of my life. And I'm sure it's the same for, for many of you in here. Uh, thirdly, God's complete covenant commitment. He's so committed to his covenant. And, and we know that if we go all the way back to our um, Genesis overview, he makes a covenant with Abraham and he, and he breaks animals in half. And he says, look, if I break my covenant to you to be committed to you, then I will break myself like I've broken these animals. And we see that cropping up in, in, in this passage in chapter 7. But he's saying, just as I've been faithful to my covenant, I'm asking you to be faithful too. And it's why we need a substitute. Because either willfully or ignorantly, we've all messed up. We've all perhaps said, Jesus, I need you. And we've come into that covenant relationship. But then we haven't been able to live up to his perfect standards. And we've messed up. And yet Jesus is our substitute. He was broken like one of those animals. And you realize just how much it must have meant to him. He's so close to us. He's so united to us. You know, um, on the road to Damascus, when he meets Saul of Tarsus, Saul had never actually physically seen Jesus, not that we're aware of anyway. And so this is the first meeting Saul has with Jesus. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul hadn't physically been persecuting Jesus. He'd been persecuting Jesus' body, his people, the likes of you and me. And yet that is how intimately Jesus wants to be with his people. He feels our pain. He feels it personally when we're persecuted. That is covenant commitment. Man, how he loves you. And we ask that question, in what particular area do we need to remember that? That, that, that God wants us to stay close to him today. That's what we're made for. He wants us to obey him. In what areas of our lives do we need to remember that? And fourthly, briefly, faith is shown in action. Uh, God's commands to Solomon couldn't be clearer. Chapter 7, verse 17, just to remind you of that verse I just read. If you walk before me as David, your father, walked, doing accord, according to all that I've commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne. And this is just being drummed into the people returning to their land. Saying, look, if, if you keep my word, you're going to have a long, peaceful existence in your homeland. And obviously today, just as back then, we cannot earn our way into God's good books. We know that. But Jesus does call us to obey him. And he says, doesn't he? John 14 again, verse 23 says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Friends, we're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. And it strikes me that to do those good works, we, we've got to have started by reading his word so that we know what the good works are. He wants us to, to pursue. 
And so we ask ourselves that question again. How am I obeying his word? Do I know his word? Am I reading his word? He's the best communicator. He's the best guide. As I come to a close, the fifth thing I just wanted to to kind of close on, and it's closing on a bit of a downer really, but it's just to alert ourselves in this passage that this was why Judah had ended up in exile. Uh, Verse 22, this is what the surrounding nations were saying. Because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them, therefore he's brought all this disaster on them. And again, it's just a, it's a shock for us. It's just a simple point in 1 and 2 Chronicles. It's a simple point in 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, because we need reminding constantly that God is the ruler of history. And therefore, the most logical thing to do is for us to place our little lives in his big hands and not try to run from him, but with him. So friends, that is the the end of these six long historical books. Loads of kings, loads of bad kings, (laughs) loads of disobedience. And we're left with this call, are we going to obey him? Is his word life to us? So I'm going to close now with a time of quiet. And then there's going to be some questions up on the screen. Um, We can go into some little discussion uh, groups. We can think about some of these questions and um, we'll bring around some teas and coffees. But just a few moments of reflection now as we sit in stillness. Father, please be in our midst. We remember Jesus saying, be one as I and the Father are one. And we pray for unity in this room, but we're amazed too that you and the Father, by your Spirit, you come to dwell within Father, that news should be too good for any of us to understand, and yet it is true, it's tangibly true. We don't deserve it. We just praise you. We praise you for your word. We pray that we'd be the sheep who hear your voice, who know your voice, who honor your voice and obey your voice. And even when it's hard to live out, would we remember that you, in all of your power, live within